pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would bless it as it is read and proclaimed. And I pray that uh, it would have the effect by your spirit's power that we would be your sheep led by the voice of our good shepherd, which is your word. I pray this would be true in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a seat? And if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We are starting a series of preaching through the book of Isaiah. Quite a long book, but it is a glorious, a glorious and majestic book in every which way. Isaiah chapter 1. And today we're going to be walking through the entirety of chapter 1. But for now, I'm going to start by reading simply verse 1. Isaiah 1 verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah thus far. First thing we need to see here is that we have a vision from the Lord, and this vision is coming to and then from a biblical prophet. Isaiah had been proven as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord set him apart as a prophet publicly. He wasn't an anonymous prophet. He was Isaiah, son of Amos, first name, last name. You could identify this guy. And so he was to stand for or fall, to be recognized as a prophet, or to be taken into a field and publicly executed based on his claims that he had been called by the Lord to be a prophet. Now, God had proved that Isaiah was a prophet. And in this book is included historical accounts of how God did that, proved Isaiah to be a prophet. God didn't expect his people to simply believe a person was a prophet until proven false. No, it was actually quite the opposite. God clearly instructed his people to be able to know whether or not a prophet was speaking on behalf of God or not. Because to God's people, his word was even more important for life than was bread and water. So it was desperately important that they would know what was good water, what was clean water, and what was poisoned water, what was salt water. And God's people were always to drink of the same well, eat the same bread, as it were, when it came to their most important food. And that was the words of God. They were not expected to go out looking, go out scavenging for their own spiritual food. Go out there and find words from God and then just eat them individually. No, God is not a cruel father. He was a good father. He is a good father. And so he has always gathered his people around the same table to feast on the same rich food that would save their lives. The food of his word. So this is meant to tell Israel in the moment and all God's people from that time forward that this was God's tested word. To his people. It's warnings they needed to be warned by. It's commands they needed to follow. It's vision of reality needed to shape how they saw the events of their world. 
Its comforts needed to comfort them, and its promises needed to be trusted as oaths sworn by God himself. It's also a vision. You see that? The vision of Amos, the son of Amos. It is a word from God, not just to an individual, but to the people of God, right? God always gave family meals when it came to visions and words from God. But it's a particular kind of meal that he set before them. It's a vision. We have different forms of scripture. This is a vision. And that means that this book is written for God's people. And it is primarily, mostly, but not entirely, and we'll get there. It's mostly in rich word pictures. Which God paints to make things even more clear. Even more feelable than if he had just merely stated the facts. And oh, he will merely state the facts plainly. But he paints these things in, in, in pictures that give the, the feel of what's actually going on. The judgments pictured in this book give a certain sense that to dismiss these things would be a grave mistake. But also... That if you put your trust in these words, they are a very certain hope. Did you notice the names of the other men that are mentioned? We've got obviously Isaiah and his dad, Amos. I wonder if you noticed the kings which he reigned when, uh, which reigned when Isaiah served. So it tells us that these prophecies were given at a very specific time. And it helps us to understand the reigns of these kings and also those kings' reigns, the events, help us to understand the word that the Lord is giving through Isaiah. These are all sons of David. Did you notice that? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, sons of David. Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned for 52 years. His dad, Uzziah, was a good king and he showed good courage at first. But then he became proud, and because of his pride, he was defeated, and the temple of the Lord was plundered. And Uzziah, his son, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But when he was old, he became proud, and he was punished with leprosy by the Lord for thinking he could essentially make himself a priest and just serve at God's temple's altar, just walk right up to God without having been appointed for that. Ahaz. Oh, sorry, Jotham. Jotham was 25 when he became king. And he also did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he failed to lead the people into loving and trusting and obeying the Lord. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He even burned his own children in worship to a false God. And instead of repenting and turning to the Lord for help, He turned to the other nations and their gods to help him. Hezekiah. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he reigned and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah cleansed the temple. Much like his descendant, the Lord Jesus did hundreds of years later. He led the people to celebrate Passover. To celebrate God's great mercy when he redeemed them from Egypt, even though they too were also guilty of sin, just like Egypt was. 
Hezekiah, if you remember, is the king that was going to die. And then he cried out to God and God granted him more years of life. And then he gave the miraculous sign of the sundial turning backward to prove that God had given him extra years. But Hezekiah too ended his life boasting of his strength and wealth. And he showed his treasures to the Babylonian visitors who would later come and then take it to Babylon. All sons of David. Some started well, all of them ended in shame and pride. Showing that they were not done waiting for the great son of David. He had not yet come. All of these kings, kings of Judah, nation which remained when Israel split. The northern tribes called Israel, turned and rejected the throne in the reign of of David. And the sons of David reigned in Jerusalem, in Judah. All sons of David here, not because they were good enough, not because they were powerful enough to hold the throne, but because God had sworn an oath to David that he would never fail to have a son for the throne and that one of his sons would receive the throne and would reign forever and ever and ever. A king who David would one day call Lord. And a major part of Isaiah's job was to speak to the current son of David, whoever the current son of David was little M Messiah, who was reigning over God's people. Isaiah's job was to speak to him as that anointed representative of the people of God. And Isaiah had some, had the privilege from God to deliver some of the most beautiful words about the great son of David who would come some 700 years after Isaiah. It was Isaiah who prophesied that the virgin would conceive and bear a child. It was Isaiah who said, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. It was Isaiah who who spoke of the Messiah who would willingly take the punishment of his people. And then he would rise from the dead and enjoy enjoy with them the salvation that he had purchased for them. It was Isaiah who said that the great Messiah would one day bring a day when the lion and lamb and wolf would dwell together without eating one another. It was Isaiah who said, comfort, comfort my people. Isaiah spoke to the sons of David, words from God. Isaiah spoke words about the sons of David, but most importantly, he spoke words about the coming son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't we have more Isaiah's? Why are we not saying the word of the Lord came to so-and-so in the reign of Trudeau? Why are there no more Isaiah's? Well, because the Lord would send Isaiah's to feed the whole household of God at the same time. Remember, God never had scavenging. You're never going to get your own food. We all eat together. We all get the same food all together around the table. He gave a public word for his people. Now, He did these things. He gave them rich, sure food, his word. Until the last day. When he would send his own son, who is the word. John chapter one, the word became flesh. And so he is our life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, he is the food we eat. The whole household of God eats him all together. The word's. Of him. And in past days, God brought out the meal, course by course, 
one after the other, laying it on the family table. The next course held back while the previous one was served. You may be seeing some of these or been some of these banquets. The next meal comes out or the next course comes out one after the other after the other. But in Christ, he did it differently. He gave the whole meal, all the courses at the same time. Hebrews 1 verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, end days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. And so we need no more Isaiah's presenting new food, new words from, the God, from God for the family of God to feast on. We need no more Isaiah's who ministered under the reigns of sons of David because we need no more sons of David. We have the great and final son of David our Lord Jesus Christ. And so dear church, this word from Isaiah is certain and true from God's own mouth. And it points to the great son of David, the Lord Jesus in whom are found all the wisdom of God. We don't look for more. We're not out on our own scounging around for, for words from the Lord looking around the world, let alone our own thoughts for rich food. The Lord gathers his whole family to a word, to a feast, to the same word, to the same feast that he has set for them all at once, all the courses in Christ. So our second point, so our first point, I guess, uh, as that is an introduction is the king who reigns in Zion, the king who reigns in Zion. Let's continue in verse two at this rate. We'll be here till next week Hear, O heavens and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I wonder if you noticed this line is very much like a herald announcing a king. Or perhaps how a bailiff is announcing a trial. The king of God's people would have also been their chief judge. And so we have a word picture here of the Lord God calling a court into session. In our day, you might hear, all rise. The Lord God of Israel presiding. Court is in session. Now, this opens what we would say is the, the first book of Isaiah. Uh, the book of, it's basically contained in chapter 1 to chapter 37. And it's often been called the book of the king. The book of the king. And the subtitle might be this. The Lord's Zion-centered worldwide purposes. The Lord's Zion-centered worldwide purposes. The king of all the earth who reigns from Zion for Zion. Two things become incredibly clear as we read these chapters, 1 to 37, this book of the king. One is that Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord, the covenant name for God, he reigns in Zion or Jerusalem. And two, that he reigns over all the world. He is the judge centered in Zion, 
where he calls his people to come and to worship and to enjoy and to find forgiveness in him. He is the king or the judge in Zion. But that reign and judgment is over all the whole earth. He isn't merely the judge or king of Israel. He's not just the king of Jerusalem. Not only the king of Mount Zion. He reigns over all the nations and all the kingdoms and kings and empires and emperors. He raises up kings and he brings about their destruction. He is sovereign over them. The author of their histories too. But he's also their judge. He judges them as their king. He is the king of kings. We see it a little bit in this passage where they're just mentioned sort of as if they're very unimportant where foreigners, foreign nations will come in to punish his people. And God is saying, I did that. I am the one who rules over them. I'm sovereign over them. And while he judges all the nations, sovereign over every move, author of their history, while he does this, while he's exercising authority and sovereignty and power over all the world, he does so with an eye to Zion. He does it for the good of Zion. And by Zion, he also means the people of Zion, her citizens. And now that the Lord Jesus, the King of David's line, the King of Zion, now that he has come, what is Zion? Who are her citizens? Remember that the Apostle Paul just taught us in Galatians. The Zion of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, is all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are Zion. So which is why we see the similar glorious theme of God's sovereignty show up in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose. And Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Very, very similar where God is sovereign over all things. But for the good of Zion. So then, where He's the Zion of God, which God reigns as the king of, even though he reigns over the whole world. Where God reigns over all the earth, but for her good. Well, she's in Transcona, where two or three are gathered in the name of Christ. There he is exercising his reign over all the earth. For the good of those dear believers in Transcona. But Zion is also in Ukraine. With those who have repented of their sin and have entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those dear Christians who were feeling increasing pressure of the West to conform to the sexual revolution. To deny God's sovereignty. And who feel also now the crushing pressure of a godless tyrant from the East. Those Christians are Zion. And they can know that the God of the universe has sovereignly raised up the world powers and industrial powers and media and political and military powers. And God will bring them up, bring them down just like he raised them up. 
And in doing both, lifting them up and knocking them down. He is reigning over all the earth with an eye for the people of Zion. He reigns in Zion for Zion over all the earth. These men are not in control. God is using them and they will be put to shame. But he uses them for the good of his church. Dear brothers and sisters, this is Christ winning. In this book, the book of the king, we see the king who reigns in Zion over and over as the focus. But it's not always the same. You'll notice sometimes when he speaks to the king in Zion, who reigns in Zion, sometimes he's just talking about whoever the current son of David is. Sometimes it's referring to the Lord God, Yahweh. And sometimes speaking of a future glorious king, a greater son of David. And we know now that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of God and the son of David. Chapters one to five actually form an introduction to the book. They, they form an introduction. So almost like a preface or actually it's, it's more like a summary of the book, almost like the back cover of a book. If you read just a summary of what the entire book is about, You know, they're going to be sparse on details, but give you the sense of what's going on. A summary of the whole 66 chapters, these first five chapters. There's, There's no detail of the names of enemy nations like the rest of the book gives. And that's one reason we call it a summary. And the other reason we'd call it a summary is when does Isaiah get called? Not till chapter six. So we can see this as a preface or a summary of the book. Today's passage is the first of that summary introduction and its theme is a court case in which the the Lord, the sovereign king as judge pulls up witnesses, right? Hear ye, hear ye, the Lord God of Israel presiding all rise. And now he's going to pull up witnesses in his case. And this is the summary of this chapter. He's piling up witnesses. And we often see wickedness in the world and ask, does God see this? What is his thought about this and what will he do? And that brings us to the first witness, which is the second point. The first witness the Lord calls is the testimony, the evidence of just how thoroughly sin has infected people. And we can call it the systemic witness, the systemic witness. Let's read Isaiah 1, 2b to 9. Children I have reared and brought up, and they have, rebe- they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged, utterly estranged. Note that. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Gomorrah, Sodom, and had become like Gomorrah, thus far God's word. Sin had so infected the people that it was not something like it was just a problem of a few people. It was so consistent that you could say it was characteristic of the people of Zion. Not just a few bad apples with, with, with the rest striving after godliness. No, the whole body is sick, not just one part. It is cancerous and it's not contained to one part of the body. Verse six, the sole of the foot to the head. And that is the nature of sin. And the nature of sin is that it is our nature. Just like your DNA is not different from your eyelash to your spleen. So too is the sin of our nature affecting everything. And not only every part of the person, but everything which humans are involved in. We can see this in this witness. So that's the middle section. That utterness or the totality. But I wonder if you notice the bookends. The front bookend speaks of children and oxen and donkeys naturally knowing and seeking the one who cares and nurtures them. And even people, even though the people of Israel had a special relationship to the Lord, his chosen people, they acted like they had no special relationship to God, which we see in verse 9. Sin had been so systematic, flowing through their whole body, so to speak, but so too were the results of sin. They were radical. They were total. They were utter destruction. Foreigners devouring the land. And God was saying here that the destruction from that conquering nations had not come randomly. It had not come simply because that foreign king was strong. It was the result of Israel's corruption and God was judging them. And he's using his power over other nations to do so. God wanted them to know that their destruction had come from their rejection of his tender care of them. They weren't sinning against a God who had treated them like enemies. They weren't sinning against a God who had cared very little for them. But the sin, but sinning against God who had treated them like his children. And that is how sin goes. How systemic it is. It turns us from the inside against God. Now that is normal for the whole human race. That we naturally see God as an enemy. But it is demonstrated even more so when people have been treated especially kind by God. When they have had special love and care from him. So God, while sitting in judgment, brings up the systemic nature of Zion's sin. And we see it especially true in the people of Israel. Not that they acted worse than the other nations, but having a special relationship with God there, they showed how deep human sin is. We could say as well that those who grow up in the church or who are part of the church and experience the goodness of the gospel, but do not love him, do not trust in him. All sin is wicked. All rebellion against God is vile, but sin is exposed even more clearly as a heart, as a systemic problem when it is in response to God's special love and care of God. 
We see this with Adam, our first father. He had a very special relationship with God, but even that was not enough to keep him from turning away in rebellion to God. He shows what we all would have done. Even if everything was set up perfectly for our success, sin would affect us that dramatically. I wonder if you notice God also shows his mercy. Did you notice that? Though Zion acted like Sodom and Gomorrah, the two towns most wicked in scripture, which God rained fire and brimstone down as a response to their sin, though Zion acted just like her and was exactly the same, the Lord didn't wipe Zion out like he had with with Sodom. He left her, it says, with a few survivors, like a hut in a cucumber field. We would say like an ice fishing shack, like one of those wooden nasty ones that is left after the spring thaw. She did get a punishment, like Sodom, because only those who are inwardly Zion are actually Zion. Exile is coming, God promises. And it will come at God's command. He will send empires which will kill and capture and take people in chains to the east. Judgment will come, but God is going to keep a remnant alive because of his international, worldwide plans through Zion, which will not be ended, not even by sin. He will be faithful to that promise. Our third point, which is our second witness that God brings up, And this is a religious witness. Hopefully you can see this with me. Next to the stand is the witness of their religious activity. He's going to bring this up. Now let's look at verse 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Notice he's calling them Sodom now. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the bulls of goats or lambs or uh, of bulls of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is inquired, who is inquired of you this, who is required of you this trampling of my courts, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus far. The people of Zion were very religious. They were very willing to offer sacrifices, which God had commanded his people. Also very willing to worship false gods. Lots of religion, lots of sacrifice, lots of blood flowing, lots of prayers going up. Now God, of course, condemned and was displeased with the worship of false gods. But he was also, I wonder if you noticed, very displeased with the sacrifices they offered, which he had at one point commanded them to do. 
because they thought what God wanted was a sacrifice. But what the Lord actually wants was righteousness. The sacrifice, the animal dying in your place, that was because righteousness, which God wanted, was lacking, and God was giving a substitute. Not so that you could keep sinning, but so that you wouldn't be crushed by your own unrighteousness. He didn't want sacrifice. He wanted righteousness. And these people were taking these sacrifices as, as an opportunity to keep practicing unrighteousness. It's like they're paying God for the ability to do this. Yet even here, God calls for repentance. And he offers real cleansing that the blood of bulls and goats could not produce. Real righteousness. God will work these things within you. A real atonement. God will actually wash your sins away. He will wipe away your sinful record. And also a real blessing. That's summarized, eat the good of the land. The people who repent and turn to the Lord, who are atoned for, their their sin is atoned for, they will enjoy the result of atonement. They will enjoy right standing with God. Not a reward for their repentance, but they will enjoy the reward of God providing them right standing. God washing their sins away. And we know now that it is nothing but the blood of Christ that actually washes away our sin and gives us right standing before God. Fourth point, which is our third and final witness being called to the stand, social witness. So the two commandments, the two, uh, sorry, the 10 commandments are often Divided into two tables. First is dealing with commandments about sinning against God. And then the second is regarding uh, commandments against other humans. And what you see here is that religious sins, worshiping other gods, is compared to a wife cheating on her husband and acting like a prostitute. And this more often than not leads to sins against other humans. And that's most clearly evident that you are not loving other humans. When there are people who stand no benefit to you involved, when there are people who can't pay you back for your kindness or love, that's when your lack of love is most clearly shown. Let's read 21 to 26. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of right of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers, Your silver has become dross. Your best best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Thus far, the sins of religion produced social sins. And the first place you're going to expect to see this, kind of like the canary in the mine shaft, the first place you're going to see this is people who can't pay you back for your help and love and care. 
Now, if you have lots of wealthy or powerful people around you that you are kind to and you care about, you might look like a good person even if you're not a good person because it's really worth your while to help these people. But not so, usually with the widows and orphans or whoever in your society is most likely to be unable to make your help something which benefits you. The princes and judges of Israel take bribes. If you have harmed a widow or orphan and you are facing judgment, you can bribe or pay off the judge and he will be merciful and will not give you the punishment that you justly deserve. But that's not how it will always be. The Lord intends to purify his people, to bring judgment for her sins and to cleanse her. Remember? And the result is that you will see purity come out of that cleansing to change the judges in people's hearts. He will not simply allow this sin. He's not simply just going to be upset about it. He will punish it. He will not be like a bribed judge. He's not bribed with animals. He's not bribed by a personal relationship with the judge so you don't get a punishment. The Lord will bring judgment Why? To remove the imperfections of the gold and silver. See that word picture? Your gold and silver have been mixed with junk. He's going to do something which will restore his people. To make them just and righteous. And he's going to use his power and sovereignty over them. And also his power and sovereignty over all the nations. To do this for Israel. She will one day be called Zion will one day be called the city of righteousness. And this is terrible news for those who hate the Lord and who hate righteousness. But it is good news for those who long for righteousness and who love the Lord. Our fifth and final point is our summary. The summary statement of the judge. Redemption comes by judgment. Isaiah has brought these three witnesses to Zion's sin. The systemic witness, we saw that, right? The totality of what sin does, head to toe. The religious witness. And then the social witness. Now comes a summary of what God's response will be to that. Let's read 27 to 31. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen, but you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his word, a spark His work, a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Thus far God's word. The Lord has promised mercy and forgiveness for his people. But he's not like the wicked princes and judges of Zion. He does not accept bribes. And as a way to let people keep sinning. He will bring great judgments against sin. He will break it and he will spend his wrath on sin. He will destroy. 
he's going to take those things that people trusted in. The oaks and gardens represented the places where the people loved to worship idols. It's the place to go to worship an idol. And he's going to show how shameful that thing is that they were trusting in. He's not only going to shame those idols, but he will shame the people who trusted in them. If your trust and boast was in Enron, when Enron was put to shame, you kind of were too. The people will perish with their sin. The idols and their leafy trees where they worshiped, symbolically speaking, is going to be turned to dry wood, kindling. And the ones who do not trust in the Lord will be consumed together with the things they trusted in instead of trusting the Lord. This is a terrible judgment, but it is true and right. But it's also going to be a redemption. It's going to be a salvation. And that's a common theme in scripture. I wonder if you've noticed that redemption through judgment, Adam and Eve were blessed by the curse that God laid on Satan. That was their redemption. Our first promise of redemption is the crushing, the cursing, the judgment of God on Satan that he promises. Now we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ would do. Noah was rescued from the exceeding wickedness of the world when the flood destroyed all human life but his own family. Lot was rescued by the wicked, from the witnesses, uh, wickedness of Sodom when it was destroyed in judgment. Israel was rescued from Egypt by the terrible judgments which the Lord brought on Egypt for its great sin. This is a theme throughout scripture, redemption through judgment. Dear church, we too live in a world of terrible, terrible sin. Extravagant sin. Where wrong is right and good is evil. And the Lord is judge and king and perfectly sovereign over this World, Why are these things rising to power? These wicked and insane ideas seeming to overwhelm the world. Oh, the Lord is doing this. He is exposing the foolishness of the idols of the world. He's raising them up. And in so doing, will show how wicked these things are. And he will certainly bring them down. And in and as he's doing it, he is doing it with an eye for Zion, for his church, to purify the church, to strengthen her faith, to keep her from idols by showing how grotesque these idols were. But there will one day be a day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in his human nature as the great son of David to judge the living and the dead. And he will put to shame. He will destroy the idols, the false hopes, the wickedness. And all who loved and trusted in those wicked things. Dear friends, that should include us too. For we are also sinners. Who have sinned greatly against God. And we have also trusted in those things. Which would lead their people who trust in them to be put to shame. Why then will we not be destroyed along with the wicked? Why then will we not be destroyed along with those wicked things that we have trusted in? 
Because we too have shown a hatred to people made in God's image. And we have been more inclined to help and defend people who can pay us back or help us. We too have corruption which goes from our head to our toes. We too have trusted in wicked things. Why then would we not be put to shame when the Lord comes in judgment? Why will that day of judgment and hell be for us a day of redemption rather than a day of of shame and hell for us? Because the Lord Jesus Christ came to Zion 2,000 years ago to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he was put on trial and condemned, even though he was righteous. And yet, this was God's sovereign plan to give his son, to first take the sin of real Zion, to take the sin, the guilt of real Zion on his shoulders. And then while he was carrying that, be condemned, destroyed, consumed by the wrath of God. So that we could be forgiven and God could be a just judge. His blood was spilled instead of ours. He was put to shame instead of us. And by his shame, we are glorified, which is why we glory in the cross, an agent of shame and torture. His blood is that which God promises would wash away our guilt and make us pure as fresh snow or sheep's wool. And he was raised from the dead to conquer death for us so that we could not only be redeemed, not only forgiven, but that we could live forever to enjoy that forgiveness. The call of the gospel is now as it was then. Turn from your sin. Come to him for rescue. Not only from the sin of others. We we definitely are willing to come to God for the rescue of the sin of others but also from your own sin and guilt come for cleansing. It was his idea and it is his sure promise that those who repent and believe in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus will have their sin cleansed, but do it before the day of judgment comes. When the people of Zion will be redeemed by the destruction of the wickedness which oppresses them and intimidates them and also sadly tempts us, if we're honest. Until that day, it is still true that he reigns over all kings and kingdoms and peoples and powers, and he reigns from and for true Zion, his covenant people who have come to him to be forgiven and cleansed and redeemed And who enjoy him now as father. Come says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson. They shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient. You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel. You shall be eaten by the sword. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We recognize that you are the king over all the earth, that you are sovereign over the men that we fear. The men that we put our hope in, you are sovereign over them. 
and they will be put to shame. Along with all the other pressures that we are inclined to jump in with, Lord. I pray that you would give us eyes to see that you are the king, to fear you, to love you, to trust you, to run to you for cleansing, to escape the judgment by being in your son who has taken our judgment for us. And Lord, until that day, Lord, I pray that we would worship you as king over all things, that we would trust you, and that we wouldn't be fools to think that these men are in control of the world or even their own bodies. But that we would rest in your sovereignty. And not just that you are sovereign. But that you reign in Zion. In the church. For Zion. For the church. Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. Amen.